Geoglitch and welcome back to Geoglitch Ministries or welcome to Geoglitch Ministries if it is your first time. I hope you find today's sermon enjoyable but more so I hope you find it edifying and even convicting. If you are a non-believer I hope you stick around and I hope that God uses this sermon in your life to bring you to the faith. God bless and enjoy. We're continuing now with our study of Hosea, we are still in chapter 5, today we're doing verses 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12. So, let's get into it. Hosea chapter 11, starting in verse 8, going to verse 12. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Orama, sound the alarm at Beth-Avon, we follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is true. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rush to the house of Judah. So in this passage it seems that more focus is um, certainly put on Judah and some of their own wrongdoings. So we begin, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Gibeah and Ramah are in the, are in Benjamin, which is part of the tribe, or part of the, um, the kingdom of Judah, the two kingdoms in, uh, the two tribes in the kingdom of Judah are Judah and Benjamin. And in Benjamin you have Gibeah and Ramah. And it seems God is saying, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. What's this about? Well, whenever there is a coming attack of any kind, there would be obviously a horn blown to let everyone know, hey, there's some guys coming here to kill us. I thought you might like to know. Um, perhaps get ready for it. And that's what's happening here. Blow the horn in Gibeah and Ramah. God is going to punish Judah, that's the kingdom, that's Judah and Benjamin, along with the rest of Israel, along with Jerusalem, because they haven't been doing too good themselves. They're not as bad as Israel, they're not as bad as Jerusalem, as we've been coming to find out, or as, we, as we've been learning about over the last little while, but they are still quite bad. They're not that, they're, they're not squeaky clean, they're not, you know, angels or anything else like that. But they're not so bad that God doesn't want to warn them. Sound the alarm at Beth Avon. These are places that God clearly cares about, that God, despite wanting to punish, doesn't want to punish too severely. We follow you, O Benjamin. Benjamin seemingly taking the charge on this, everyone following Benjamin. Seems to be taking control in the same way that Ephraim is the most important part of Jerusalem. Benjamin would be considered here possibly the most important part of Judah. And places are being told, blow the horn, blow the trumpet, blow the alarm or sound the alarm. Because something bad is coming, and it's coming to punish you. But I want you to be at least somewhat ready. Because to, for you, for Judah, there will be a recovery afterward. Unlike with Jerusalem, there will be a recovery 
or Judah, they will be brought back. They will not be scattered like the ten tribes of Jerusalem will be. We go to verse 9. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is true. So Ephraim shall become a desolation. Remember Ephraim, sort of the leader of Jerusalem. Um, that's where all the kings have come from. And it's, it's taken charge here. It's in charge of all of them. Because it's in charge of them, it gets the harsher, harsher punishment. Now the Bible is quite clear that those in uh, positions of power get you know a lot stricter qualifications, far stricter qualifications, especially those with religious influence. For example, if First Timothy three is the qualifications for overseers and deacons, might as well read it. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all diligent, um, with all diligent. He, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well taught of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-toned, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the ministry, the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. We see quite a thing. There's a lot of qualifications there. There's a lot of standards you have to meet. The standards for being a leader are high, whether it's a religious leader or otherwise. And of course, religious leaders here are at the forefront. They're not particular. They're not specifically named here. But they have been throughout and you know god does care about religious leaders and the way they're leading their people and we know religious leaders are dealt with more harshly and leaders in general are dealt with more harshly but we'll talk more about that in a minute ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment as the leader they shall be desolated the other ten tribes or the other nine tribes desolated as well but ephraim specifically seems to go through a lot because they are the leaders. They are the ones everyone looks to. In that day of punishment, when the Assyrians come and scatter them, I believe this is referring to that. I don't believe it's referring to damnation. <coughs> Excuse me. The day of punishment, the Assyrians will come and scatter the ten tribes of Jerusalem, but not Judah and Benjamin. They won't get off completely. They won't have a great time of it. But they will not be scattered like the other ten tribes of Israel will be. Among the tribes of Israel I make known what is true. Of course God always knows what is true. He is truth. He is the embodiment of truth and of honesty and so on. And he knows everything. There's no 
catching around him. There's no fooling him or tricking him. You can lie to God all you want. You won't make him believe you, no matter how convincing you sound or confident you are. You're not going to trick him into believing something that isn't true because he knows what is true and he makes known what is true. And among the tribes of Israel, he shall make known what is true. And he shall make known what is true among everyone in the whole world. On that day called Mr. Judgment Day, and everyone will stand before him, before all creation, he will make known what was true, who was truly a believer and who wasn't, who had true faith and who didn't. He will make known who are his people and who are not. And he will do that as well among the tribes of Israel. He will make known who in Israel is truly his. Because he will destroy those who aren't. He will use the Assyrians to scatter them. And those who do not suffer that same punishment will be revealed as his people. We go to verse 10. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark upon them. I will pour out my wrath like water. So now we're shifting away from Israel and towards the wrongdoing of the people or the leaders of Judah. Not the people. Not the people. The leaders. Again, we go to James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we teach, who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now I know this is about teaching, this is about ministry, it's not about leadership in general. <sighs> Same with the last verse from First Timothy. But I think the same standard really applies. If you're the leader of a group of God's people, there is a standard which you must meet. And there is a strictness by which you will be judged. Whether you are leading them in church, or you're just leading a group of God's people in general, there is a strictness which would, uh, with which you will be judged and a standard you must meet. And the princes of Judah are not meeting the standard. They're not doing well enough. They're sinning quite badly. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Well, what does that mean? Well, if we go to Deuteronomy, two verses, Deuteronomy 19.14 and 27.17. Deuteronomy 19.14 says, You shall not move your neighbor's landmark which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the lands that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And Deuteronomy 27:17, Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. And let all the people say, Amen. So like you who move the landmarks, you will become like people who go to try and take land which is not yours sinfully. There was a story there. Possibly a few years ago, um, I believe of a French farmer, um, 
word stone in this field. And that stone was meant to mark the boundary between his country and the neighbouring country. And so the stone was getting in the way of his farming work. So he just picked it up and moved it. And I can't remember if he knew whether or not it was the boundary stone. But he didn't move it very far. He just moved it to the edge of the field. So it wasn't like miles and miles away. He just picked it up and moved it a few feet, essentially. And then that was a whole thing. That was quite big news for a while. Um, because everyone was interested in that. And so it's sort of the same thing here, except for he was moving it because it was just a stone in his field that was annoying him. Here, the people are not necessarily actually doing it, but they are like those people. They see the boundary stone, they see the landmark, and they move it. Now, why would you move a landmark? Well, no country in history has ever gone to war with the explicit intention of giving up land to the enemy. It's what happens to a lot of countries, but it's not what they go to do. They always go to take land. And so we see something similar here, not that they're going to war, but that they're trying to take land. They're not picking up their own boundary and saying, yeah, you can have more, I'll, I'll bring this back here, you can have my land. They're not doing that. Picking up the land, picking up the mark. Possibly slyly, stealthily. No one's looking, moving a few feet forward and putting it back down, inching ever closer, giving themselves more land little by little. Or possibly they're bold about it, they pick it up, they march on over and they put it down after they've given themselves a few miles. However they're doing it, very sinfully, they're gaining more land. Now this could be an actual reference to an attempt by these leaders to gain more land. Or it could be a more metaphorical reference to their attempt to gain more prosperity, or it could be both. It could be showing that while they're not as bad as their friends in the north, they're still sinning against God, against their fellow man. They're trying to take what isn't theirs. And so God says, Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. And this isn't the only time we see this sort of um, imagery. There's a few verses in the Bible that talk about God pouring out his wrath, pouring forth his wrath abundantly. God would pour it out like water. And he would punish them. Notice how he doesn't just say Judah in this passage. He says the princes of Judah. I believe that the individual leaders of Judah will be punished for their transgressions. I don't believe that the average person of Judah, the people in Judah, will be punished. I believe that the leaders of Judah are going in the same direction as the leaders of Jerusalem. But where? The leaders of Jerusalem have so far managed to lead their people astray. The leaders of Judah have not managed to do so yet. Maybe they're just not able to do it. Maybe they haven't got 
the same start, maybe they started later. My opinion is that God was preserving the people of Judah so that even though their leadership was sinful and trying to lead them away from God, God was preserving the people and keeping them and not letting them go. God was preserving his saints. So because the people stayed with him, but the leaders didn't, the leaders specifically would be punished. And perhaps the leaders themselves were there as a punishment. Maybe the people of Judah had done something wrong. I believe it was John Calvin, I could be wrong, but I believe it was him who said that God sends bad leaders as punishment upon nations. Which is true, he certainly does. So, perhaps they were there as a punishment against Judah. And now Judah, having done something wrong and being punished, will not now be punished for what they've done wrong because they've already received their punishment. But the leaders who led badly, now it's their turn to be punished because they had a job and they failed at it. Because they sinned against God and they sinned against their own people. If we go to verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. So Ephraim was oppressed. What does that mean? It means Ephraim has oppressed himself, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. And look, you can see, I think this is the second time I've mentioned it now, you can just, you can feel the anger you can feel the, the wrath behind what Hosea is saying here. You can feel the, the sense of betrayal behind what Hosea is saying here. Like a little while ago, like in chapter 4, verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood. You can feel how angry. Hosea is and how angry God is in this writing. It's palpable. You can feel it because he says, because they were determined to go after filth. Now, another way of rendering this is to follow human precepts. Which, I don't know, still serves the same purpose, but I like this translation better. They were determined to go after filth. They abandoned the one true God to inquire of chunks of wood and filth. And that's what false gods are. That's what sin is. False gods. Little more than whatever idols we create to represent them. Sin is little more than filth. Dirt. And Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after that filth. Ephraim will suffer as a result of their own actions. They'll get what's coming to them. Verse 12 But I am like a moth to Ephraim. 
and then drive off to the house of Judah. God will punish those who have sinned against him, no matter where they are. If they're in Ephraim or if they're in Judah, if, they're, if they've abandoned him, he will punish them. So what's our application for today? Again and again and again in this, in this book we see the same application. Don't abandon God. Don't run from God. Follow him. Because your only other options are bits of wood and filth. You must follow him. I don't know who's listening to this, but I do know one thing. You're a sinner. How do I know this? Because the Bible tells me so. The Bible also tells me that Christ died for sinners. He died for his people. Repent of your sins and believe in him. I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you would like some other ways of consuming G-Witch Ministries, then go to the links in my About section on my YouTube channel, and you will find my website, my TikTok, my Instagram, and my Spotify, where you can find either snippets of these sermons or the full sermons. If you would like to finance these sermons or help me monetarily, then you can also find my Patreon. You don't have to do this, but it would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for watching. God bless. And son, I'll just grab my